He was a pro cyclist, Cape Town Cycle Tour winner, captain of South Africa's cycling team, Olympian and world championship competitor. Many would think that's a great career, but Doug Ryder was only starting his journey once he stopped pedaling competitively. He had a dream to see an African-based pro cycling team competing on a global stage, and today he's the team principal of the NTT Pro Cycling Team. The outfit, formerly known as Dimension Data, is under new sponsorship with the Japanese telecommunications giant, and the dream is to make Africa's team the best in the world, with Doug guiding them to that goal. The Kubeka charity component of the team is a massive part of its mission, using bicycles to improve access to schools, services and jobs alongside building a competitive world tour team. I'm Craig Gray, and today it's a real pleasure to have Doug on the show. Welcome to the Maverick Sports Podcast, Doug. Yeah, thank you, Craig. Hope everything was in that intro. Eh? <laughs> you still, you still with Quebecer? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it's fundamental to what we're doing. In fact, some of the media every year internationally say, "Oh, you're still riding for that charity," and yeah. it's like, well, it's actually part of our DNA. I mean, it's. Uh, I think the next part of our dream is that, you know, if a child that starts on a Quebec bicycle could end up at the Tour de France, that would be the, yeah. the cradle to the Holy Grail story. So, so yeah, absolutely. How, how long have this association been going with? Yeah, we've, um, so we partnered with them in the name of our team since 2011. So yeah. it's been quite a, quite a long time. And, you know, we've done 35,000 bicycles with them wow. out of the 105,000 that they've distributed in, in communities now. So they went over a hundred thousand last year in October. Jeez. So we've been a significant part of that. And it's a, uh, yeah, it gives us uh, that third dimension, I guess, for our team, which is unique. Have you had any sort of feedback? Are there potential you know, pro riders that have started on a Quebecer bike coming through or, or are they 12 years old now, 14 Yeah, years old? I mean, they are a little bit young still, but mm-hmm. um, I guess the Nick Lamini story is, the, is a beautiful story. He didn't start on a Quebecer bike, but through mm-hmm. Velakaya and riding in Kailicha and then now living in Girona in Spain, racing on the World Tour is, you know, that's yeah. that's the, it's a beautiful story that. and. Uh, just give and us Nick a little bit hope. more about Nick while we're on him. Yeah. Right? No, Nick is an amazing, amazing guy. He was with us since he was 16. He came to Potchefstroom. We've, you know, he finished his matric with us. And, uh, because we said that every kid that comes to us can't be homeschooled. They need to actually to go physically through school because it's critical for us that, uh, that they do that in case something happens in their cycling career that they can, you know, they can actually have another career. So that was important. But yeah, Nick, you know, was with us since in Potchefstroom. I mean, he's been with us, I think, six years now. Yeah. And, uh, and has grown every year. Last year, he was the first, you know, it was his first Grand Tour in the Vuelta España. And then sadly, yeah, this whole incident with Sand Parks in, in December, which was like two months ago now, and that uh, that really set him back, all his training. And so now he's sure. taken two months. He's getting back into it. But yeah, Remind me of the injury he got there? Uh, yeah, he, they broke his arm, his arm yeah, yeah. Like the, the top part of his arm. Where are we at with that? How much can you speak about that? It's a civil case, so you know there's a like, you know, there's a legal case behind it now. So they're just waiting to see what happens, I guess, through that, and that takes its time. Yeah. But you know, you know, in the end, Nick absolutely wants to ride his bike again, and he wants to try and get strong. And you know, be he's on the short list for us for the Tour de France, and uh, and of course, the Olympic Games is a big deal. Yeah. If you know these events go ahead this year, which <laughs> well, is you never know. Every day is a different day, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know he's an exceptional human being and he's really the, you know, the, the dream of this team ultimately. And he's back on the bike. He's training. back on the bike. Yeah, yeah well, that's good. Again, which is great. So the Tour de France, I mean, that's July. What's your cutoff for selection? You know, we look at the Tour de France and we, we bring about 13 or 14 riders into the program to try and get there because, you know, the route changes every single year. So we look at the route and then we analyze out of our 29 riders who are the 13, 14 that potentially could go. So we train them right up until, right up until the start date and we announce our team literally 72 hours before. Yeah. Some guys can, you know, break their collarbones and, and things can happen. So we prepare riders right up until that last minute. So you are pretty much, you know, middle of June, we'll know. And, uh, 
so let's just hope Nick can, can get there. The big story around the world, yes. be it business, retail industry, yeah. and sport, particularly COVID-19. I mean, yeah. uh, you guys are, are racing in Paris-Nice yes. is the next race, and you've decided to not pull out as a team. You've decided to keep going until the authorities make those decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's been quite a few teams that have pulled out, and, you know, like we understand how hard it is to keep partners happy and sponsors happy and even the events also struggle to keep their sponsors happy yeah. and, and to keep sponsors and you know to partner with them through events and and so for us you know until the race organizers tell us that it's it's not safe for the race to to even be on then uh, then we won't obviously participate if there's no race but you know for now as a team you know we will absolutely participate in all the races that we can we taking lots of precautions of course and uh, you know looking after our guys but in the end, if, if the race is going, we, we will definitely participate. About a week ago, you had it first-handed, uh, the Tour of the United Arab Emirates. Yes. I mean, the, the race was called off with two stages to go, and your guys were locked down in quarantine. Yeah. What was the feedback you got from that experience? Yeah, look, uh, I mean, the, the race wasn't prepared for that um, because there's still teams that are still in lockdown wow. over a week later um, in that hotel in Abu Dhabi, which is quite hectic. And we were there as well, but, uh, you know, they, they cleared that floor that we were on. And uh, once everybody had been blood tested and they were negative, then they eventually could get out. But, yeah, it's a, it's a tough environment. And, and I think the race organizers and the, the community in that space actually didn't really know what to do. And, mm. uh, yeah, I think it's going to get better and better and better as more, as more things like this happen, I guess. But it was, it was a horrible experience for the team because yeah. everybody's quite scared about it. Sure. So I think there's lots of misinformation, I think, which is causing chaos. But um, it wasn't a great experience for the team at all. I know you're not a medical man, but riders are so fit generally. Um, are their immune systems more compromised because they, you know, they're so lean and all these kind of things? You know, they are super strong and they are, you know, at the best that they can be, but for sure they are lean body mass and they, but you know, from a healthy point of view, they, you know, they are really, really healthy and they mm. look after themselves and they've, their sanitation is really good and they just, their cleanliness is really top notch, but you know, they, like if anything can happen, touching lifts and all that kind sure. of stuff, but yeah, look, um, yeah, I think they, you know, they're pretty good. We haven't had any real cases, but I mean, of course, some of our riders do get sick in the cold of the of the spring of Europe and yeah. where you have four seasons in an hour sometimes so they, they can get sick but they I mean they do look after themselves really well so I want to we talk isolate about, them when they get sick yeah well, so. I suppose you'd have to yeah. in that team environment no, absolutely. I want to talk about the logistics of, of riding yes. a, a bit later because I, I think it's fascinating for, for those of us that have never sort of seen a Tour de France from behind the scenes and just the, yeah. the sheer sort of army that it requires but we'll get to that in a moment but yes. let's just talk about your career you were a pro cyclist you won the Cape Town Cycle Tour you won the Berlin Tour as yeah. it was back then how did you get started in cycling where's the passion come from yeah look my uncle actually got me started there was a report tour when I was 13 mm. years old there was a report tour that came through Cape Town and a British team was there and went to go and see them and uh, yeah and I just fell in love with it actually and uh, and then I was still going to school and my parents bought me a bike when I was 13 as well. And then I started riding every morning over Constantinec from Claremont. Really? Literally every morning before school. You could, to school or just for no, a ride? I went actually training. I like would ride over Constantinec. Which was probably not that done in the mid-80s. No, it was like I rode an hour every morning and then yeah, you know, came home, showered and put my school kit on and went to school. I I loved the freedom and just, you know, being alone and uh, and doing something on my own. I just, that was absolutely beautiful for me. So I loved that part of, of yeah. the sport, you know. Yeah. And then I rode my first cycle tour when I was 13, did a three hours, 19. There was only a, like, a, I don't know, 2000 riders at that time. Yeah. And then when I was 14, I did a two hours, 52 minutes. Wow. And then I won it eventually in 2001. So it was a long journey to get there, but it was, it was a super cool event. And I think having, having the Cape Town cycle tour in Cape Town, when I was a Cape Town based guy, it was, mm. it was pretty cool. Also gave you motivation to want to do something like that. So. 
And, and you you went pro, or I don't know if it was semi-pro. Yes. When did you go, yeah, I could probably so when do I this finished as a school, pro yeah, When I finished school, I went to the army. Um, mm. So I spent a year in the military. That gives my age away, I think. But um, <laughs> spent a year in the military, was Defence Force champion. And then as soon as I was finished the army, I then tried to, I worked in a coffee shop to save up money to go to Europe. And, yeah. and went to Europe with two other South Africans. And we... Yeah, we raced in 1993 and 1994. That must have been tough funding yourself around It was really tough to try and get into races and to do things. Cycling South Africa actually, you know, granted us national team kind of status so we could piece a few riders together and go and ride as a national team just to get into events because in those days there was professional and amateur. There wasn't like categories like under 23. So there wasn't really a race program. Were you racing as an amateur at that point? We were racing Hmm. as an amateur, yeah. I suppose, I don't know how if cycling is like golf, but you, you can't claim the prize money if you're an amateur or can you no no i mean those we actually raced for our food you know mm-hmm. we raced these kermes cursa which are these street races around the church normally in a town and uh, we made some money and you know had Paid dinner the- yeah i had dinner that night <laughs> we stayed in the basement of someone's house it was pretty hectic actually this is a few of us and then the national team kind of got their stuff together and we went to a few races and it was pretty cool so mm-hmm. and then i was in america in 1995 and 1996 as a professional so that was amazing i raced on um, an american team for two years went to the olympics in atlanta yeah. but it was the late 90s and into the early 2000s it was it was at the time when cycling was a pretty hectic sport with um, a lot of the doping was yeah. around at that time so it was like racing motorbikes so we didn't really get the opportunities and then you know, after the Olympics in 96, when I came back to South Africa, I started my own team in 1997 and started working. Oh, really? Because I was already… What team was that? It was um, Lotus, Team okay. Lotus, and then it became IBM Lotus, and then Microsoft. Were you in that industry? Well, I, I started to work because I was already 25 years old, yeah. 26 years old. And I said, if I'm at, at 26, if I'm not earning any money out of cycling, I best do something. Mm. So then I, you know, I got a job at Lotus I convinced the CEO to partner with the team and start a team and he was an amazing guy and and that kind of started the journey and then I worked for IBM for five years and for Microsoft for six years and they sponsored our cycling teams at the same time so that was pretty cool and then I left the corporate world in 2007 and did the team full-time so I've been doing this team full-time now for 13 years. So when did the sort of seed germinate you know we can get an African team on the world tour when did that start looking like a reality? It was a dream in the beginning. In that Olympic Games in 1996, when Josiah Tagwani won gold yeah. in the Olympic marathon, and then it was then the kind of the thought, you know, came through. I guess that if Africa can produce the best endurance runners, then why not cyclists? Fair and point. so then we, you know, look through Africa to see, and, and Africa is a continent of walkers because if you own a bicycle, you're too poor to own a car, so you'd rather walk. So I thought if we could really? create this, this, is that the stigma? Yeah. I didn't realize it. So I thought if we could create this hero on a bike then uh, we could make the bike cool across the African continent and maybe we can mobilize this continent. So that's kind of how it started. But then, yeah, that was a pipe dream in 1997. I had no experience, no business experience. So then, of course, my journey has been actually pretty amazing because then I spent 11 years in corporate, Mm. which helped me, I guess, understand business and sell multi-million rand sponsorships and, uh, and build relationships. And I've always been really good with that, I think. Over the years, and then yeah, then started the team full time, and I was still racing on the national team while I was still working. So I was getting up at half past four in the morning, riding a hundred kilometers before work, going to work a full day, and then going to like the Kyle Army racetrack and racing on the racetrack for an hour in the evening. So I was training twice a day. Yeah. So it was a hectic time, and then I still yeah you know, raced till till I was well into my thirties. Two thousand seven was that. When you when you became a team principal, yes, effectively, is, yeah. that, is that correct? Yeah. So uh, remind me what the team was called at that point. So it was um, then it was MTN, MTN, um, yeah. MTN Quebec. So we yeah we started with MTN Quebec at that and time, and it has had various iterations yes, since correct. then. Yeah. yeah. Then it became MTN Quebec, powered by Samsung, and then Dimension Data, and then Dimension yeah. Data for Quebec, and then now NTT Pro Cycling. So it was been 
it's been quite a journey, but it was an amazing, it was an amazing time actually to, we had riders from Uganda. We started with African riders on the mountain biking, um, which was pretty hectic because mountain biking, you know, road cycling, there's echelons and there's all tactically, you know, it's quite a tough sport, mm. road cycling, radio communication. And these guys were battling with English. And so you, they didn't understand <laughs> what we were saying over the race radio. So the tactics was all a mess. So we started with mountain biking and just told them to go from here to there, don't hit a tree. And <laughs> go as fast as you yeah. can. <laughs> and then, I mean, there were some races where we were waiting at the finish and we had just trust Munan Gandu and Jupiter Namimbo, these two Ugandan guys. And that we started with them. And, and this one guy was stuffed. He was lying under a tree. We had to go and fetch him on a motorbike. It's like, what are you doing? He's now I'm tired. So I said, you can't, you got to keep going. And we just laughed and we just thought, what the heck? This was a crazy situation. And then also we brought guys from Ethiopia and Eritrea. Yeah. And, uh, and we didn't know that Eritrea and Ethiopia were at civil, in civil war. And so then these guys were like, oh, I'm not sleeping in the same house as that guy. Oh, really? Because he just might do something to me. And then we were like, what are we doing? We're just trying to run an African cycling team. And <laughs> and we didn't even, then we started to realize that we best we do our homework around yeah. like politics and geographies and all sorts of things. Did you ever get those two guys together? No, <laughs> now they're, they're like great, great friends. Oh, the, countries are, the countries are amazing together. But it was it was hectic at that time. So yeah, we, we, we learned a lot of lessons. Who's that? Tekla Heinemann, not yeah, good Daniel. Chen. Is he, he was with your team for a while. Yeah, he? he was. Yeah, he's he was kind of the the African that put Africa on the map, and uh, and he you know, he was with us for years, and was that you know in our first Tour de France in 2015, he wore the King of the Mountains jersey. He's a special human being, old Daniel. Have you? I mean, now that you're more experienced at this, and uh, you, like you say, you've done your homework. Do you do a lot more physiological screening, that kind of thing, when you're looking at young riders? Yeah, look, it's, it is quite tough, um, you know, because they don't have a history um, in, in terms of performance. So now, mm. when we, we look at international riders, we can look at their CVs, at their power data. So it becomes easier now. And riders that don't have a coach, we don't even look at. So if you're not that kind of a rider anymore up at that really? level. But across Africa, we work a lot with the national federations. You know, we just uncover talent and try and find it that way. But we've made, I mean, you you, you take a bet on someone that might not materialize into something significant. And I think with the African riders that we've had from Eritrea, Ethiopia, Algeria, Rwanda, Morocco, We've had some good riders, but um, there hasn't been one that really stands out. So maybe the first row, the first shot at this, you know, they, um, they just weren't the best. And we're still hoping that our team that opened the door for African cycling will still try and, you know, bring the best African talent into it. And then we could hopefully have an African rider on the podium in a grand tour in the next three to five years. That's our goal. Yeah. Explain to me and to, to the listeners, how, how difficult is it getting a team on the world tour? Because it's it's a very European-centric sport yeah. uh, traditionally. And I mean, even the Americans in the early days with 7-Eleven with Andy yes. Hampton and those guys in the 80s, yeah. uh, they, they, they would have had to fight their way into the yeah. tour. And, 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 and I guess there was probably a lot of scorn about an African team. There's probably an elite sort of yeah. looking down their noses at, at African teams. How did you break that barrier? It was really tough, actually. And we, when we registered our team, just to even set it up, it was really difficult. Nobody really helped us. Um, I spoke to some of the guys from Team Bala World at the time because Bala World was a South African-sponsored, British-registered Italian team. <laughs> so they kind of like had their foot in the Mediterranean and, yeah. and they were, had everything around them. But they, they kind of helped us in terms of how do we fund this thing and, how to, and what it potentially could cost because we didn't know anything. And yeah. nobody really helped us internationally. So brought in an international sports director to, to try and get us into races because that's a, the big thing because nobody wanted to help us. And when we tried to get international riders, the rider agents looked at us and said, you from where? No, South Africa. Like, where's that? You know, Africa, mm. South, bottom? Fuck. <laughs> Um, and so they didn't, even, they didn't even open the door. They said, yeah, you guys, there's no chance that you'll exist. 
But then when we went into Europe and decided to stay in Italy and Tuscany and Luca, base ourselves there, we didn't know that Italy, the fuel in Italy is more expensive than anywhere else in, in Europe. We were three days old as a team and tried to lease cars and they said, give us three years of financials. And I was like, no, we're three days old. <laughs> and they said, it's not possible. So we had to rent cars through a friend who owned a Kentucky fried chicken in Switzerland. So he stood surety and leased cars for us. And we, we drove those cars into Italy with Swiss number plates. And then the Italians blacklisted the Swiss. And then we were like, what are we doing? <laughs> and then our riders, you know, some Eritrean riders went AWOL. And <laughs> it, it was just, it was hard, like really hard in the beginning. And, and we made lots of mistakes. But, yeah. um, you know, now we, now we are a well-oiled machine, still in, based in Luca with our under-23 team. That's the best under-23 team in the world. Developed the world champion last year. We have our service course, which is our main European headquarters in the Netherlands, where we have 250 bicycles, 22 vehicles, you know, two trucks, two buses, a kitchen truck, you know, 17 cars, um, sponsored by Mercedes-Benz when we didn't even have a sponsorship in the beginning. We had to buy and lease everything because yeah. nobody wanted to help us. No, it was, it was absolutely crazy. And, and it took years to, to set it up, but still. What does it cost to run a pro team, world tour team these days? Yeah, um, you go from the high end, which is like Team Ineos. The it's old former Sky, Sky, just for those of you. Yeah, so yeah. they are on about 45 million euro a Whoa. year, which is close to a billion rand a year. And then, you know, then you've got other teams that are between 15 and 25 million euros. Um, on the 15 is on the real low end mm. um, for the world tour. So the 19 world tour teams that are registered, of which we are one. Um, but our budget is about 16 million euro, which is about 255 million rand. That makes you a big organization in South African sporting terms. I mean, that's a bigger budget than the Stormers, yeah. for instance. Yeah. No, I think we, yeah, it's a significant and a budget. And I think when I, when I do speak to people and they say, geez, you know, you have the best job in the world. You only work 21 days in July. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, we race about 286 days a year. Yeah. In fact, that first Tour de France that we went to in 2015, we knew we were good because we'd raced 550 race days in Europe. Nobody really understood Up that. until July. Up until July. Wow. Because we were two years already in Europe. So right. it was our third year. And, right. and we'd raced 550 days in Europe. And then when we went to that Tour de France, we were just – it was – Steve Cummings won. Yeah, on was Mandela that your Day. first stage? Yeah. Too? On Mandela Day. Correct. Yeah. So can you imagine? So there'd never been an African registered team in the Tour de France. We're from South Africa, South African registered team, and we go and win our first ever stage in our first ever Tour de France on Nelson Mandela's birthday. I mean, that was proper. Mm. And and at, at the end of 2015, we were the number one second division team in the world when three years before that we hadn't even existed in European racing. It, we, we had such an incredible rise in the sport. And then we got a four-year World Tour license, and, and now our license has just been renewed for three more years. So we right. have guaranteed entry into all the biggest races. And that's world. vital for sponsorship, right? It's crucial for sponsorship because having your brand or being able to you know carry someone's brand in the Tour de France is incredible the mm. average world tour team in the Tour de France gives in return on exposure 160 million euros wow and if you think that we are a 16 million so euro it's 10 team, times it's 10 times the return just during those three weeks it's the uh, well they must be they should be paying you more yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly where's NTT when I, when I need them yeah. and NTT has obviously come along we they, they bought up um, dimension data as I I understand it. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. Correct, um, correct. So it's still part of the family. It's just you're under the big umbrella now. No, absolutely. Jeremy Ward from Dimension Data at the time in 2014 when we met. Um, I'd known him obviously through my IT time when I was working in IT. But you know, Jeremy was amazing when MTN didn't renew or didn't want to continue after eight years. They did a great innings with us. And then Dimension Data stepped in, which was amazing. They also sponsored the Tour de France. And then, yes, NTT ultimately has 
partnered with and, and like merged with Dimension Data nine years ago. And then, of course, they decided to re, re, you know, redo all the branding around the world, consolidate the, the exposure of, the, of their businesses and become NTT around the world. And Dimension Data still exists in South Africa. But yeah, they've been really good to us, actually. It's an unusual sport in the sense that the sponsor's name is in the title. It's not like, yes. it's not like you're Liverpool or Manchester United or yeah. the Stormers or whatever. Yeah. That's your brand. And then you have a, a sponsor on your jersey. The team is the name of the sponsor. And I suppose that's been good and bad for the sport. You can never have a situation where you register a brand, Quebec, for argument's sake, yeah. as, as, as the team and, and just have a sponsor name on the, on the yeah. shirt, could you? No, I mean, you could, I, I guess. Um, I mean, I'd love that. I mean, I'd love our team to be called Team Quebec, a racing to mobilize people on the African continent. That would be amazing. And just get some sponsors that fill up the jersey and they can mm. activate their sponsorships at the Tour de France. That would be amazing because then you can have that sustainability, that the team is bigger than the partner that, that partners with it. Mm. Um, and then you can get a loyal fan base that can go through generations and not just, you know, yeah. follow an organization, which is, but that's the beauty about cycling is that if, you know, for a title partner in the name, you get significant exposure. And it is one of the unique things that, you know, that makes it different, you know, different mm. to, different to Formula One, different to, to some of the other, you know, major, major sports. But, you know, you do battle to get fan bases and continuity sometimes because of, because of that, because some people think, oh, this is a new team when it's, when it's pretty much an existing yeah. team that has continued just with a new coat of paint. <laughs> well, if you if you if you don't follow cycling closely, you had Team Sky, and suddenly you, you're yeah. watching and there's Team Ineos. Now, who are these people? Yeah. If you what happened to Sky? Yeah, yeah, what happened to Sky? But it's all the same riders. Yeah. Um, did, was Chris Froome was he ever on your team in the early days? No, he, actually, was he Bala World? Or? He was on Bala World. Yeah. So, but. Um, he actually raced for Konica Minolta in South Africa oh. and we had our Microsoft team in those days when he was racing in South Africa. And, and the funny thing is, and we laugh about this, Chris and I, he was never good enough to be on our team because we had the, like the number one team in South Africa. And, uh, and we felt that Chris was never good enough. And then he goes and wins the flipping Tour de France few, so many times. And he was like, oh, so I was never good enough, but I won the tour. And I was like, damn. Well, we really made a mistake there, but yeah, not so Chris. much about Chris. But in cycling, that does raise suspicion sometimes. That people go, "Well, he, yeah, he wasn't a great junior, and now he's winning." And and because of cycling's checkered history with doping, I mean, is it possible for a cyclist to yeah improve his technique, his strength, and everything so that what he was like at twenty two, he's yeah. very different at twenty eight? No, completely. And Chris in South Africa, the racing just didn't suit him. You know, we don't have the mountains like they mm. do. I mean, he was just it is just so super special when it comes to the longer climbs, more yeah. endurance, and and the races were never long enough in South Africa. I mean, in Europe, I mean, our races here are 120 kilometers maximum. And in Europe, the race starts at 120 k's yeah. normally, you know, till, you know, 250 sometimes. So he just, yeah, it just wasn't good for him and, yeah. uh, when he was here. But then when he went to Europe, yeah, he took years for him to break through. But when he did, um, you know, when that door opens and you get that confidence and you get that lucky, you know, shot, I guess, and that one Vuelta España was where he broke through and, had the confidence and then yeah, now he's just an absolute rock star and hopefully you know he has a good season this year with yeah. his injuries he's really struggling i think but um yeah we wish obviously washing the best in most sports you can have an 18 year old a 22 year old they dominate egan Bernal's an exception yeah. he's won the tour de france at 22 yeah. and i think the previous one was probably Fignon won it at 22 and 83 or whatever yeah. but generally cyclists mature older is there is there science in that, in, in sort of putting the kilometers in your legs over a decade before your body matures for grand tours? I'm yeah, talking. no, completely. I think, um, you know, cyclists, as they get older and they've got those, that mileage in their legs and they build on it year on year, they, they are stronger. They can go deeper, further and harder into, into races, the classics and the grand tours. But we've seen now with a rider like Alaphilippe and, mm. and Egan Bernal, I mean, they are, Alaphilippe is 25, Bernal is 22. 
and the new young generation is coming through. And we, even in the classics, Perry Roubaix, you know, you would never find someone in the top 10 in Perry Roubaix that was under the age of 28. Now five out of the top 10 are 25 and younger. Mm. So these new, this is, there's a new young generation that's coming through that they are just stronger and just aggressive and they, they just don't have that respect for the older generation. They're just going out there and smashing it and, and really doing well. Uh, you know, so it's interesting. The sport is absolutely changing. As a sports journalist, I've read a few cycling books and there's always been a very sort of distinct pecking order in the peloton. And, yeah. you know, when you're the rookie that comes in, you got to, and it still exists to a point. You've got yeah. the domestiques and you've got the team leader and everyone works and that makes cycling unique. There's so much sacrifice yes. for one goal. Is that changing with this dynamic with the young whippersnappers coming through? Yeah, look, some of them don't want to work <laughs> for the, for others they want to give the and have the opportunity to race and do well but you know cycling is such a hard sport that if you're going to try and win big things you have to you know sacrifice for a leader and, and I think that's what we've been pretty good at as well as a team we you if you focus and plan in the racing of course if you want to win the yellow jersey in the Tour de France then you got you get seven riders working for one for the for three weeks with us we you know we choose different stages for different riders and mm. everybody commits to that individual who's who's day it is and then um, and we support them like when Steve Cummings won you know those stages in the Tour de France for us we committed 100% for him on those days the whole team was committed because that to him. day's route suited his yeah so strength. we look at every single of the 21 days and we break it up into which riders could be good on what days and then we absolutely focus and target on that and then we give those riders that responsibility and then the whole team knows that their function today is to support that rider and uh, and of course there will come a time when we'll want to race for the overall and then you know we won't be able to give individual riders the opportunity to try and win stages and uh, and they'll have to just sacrifice themselves completely for the overall victory as a business how do you find that Bernal or Froome or you know Bradley Wiggins or whoever the guy that can win the grand tour because as you said Ineos has a 45 million euro yeah. budget so they've got Bernal and Froome and probably a few other guys that are capable of winning Grand Tours. How do you compete with that for for Grand Tour rider? Yeah, it's difficult. Um, you know, Grand Tour riders, they're few and far between and they're very expensive and uh, it takes years to build them. Um, we've got a few coming through in our team now. Ben O'Connor is a good rider. I mean, Louis Mankies has been a bit off, but we're hoping he comes back strong again. But it takes time, it takes years and it, you have to show on, in the stage races and a lot of the smaller stage races like Tour de Suisse or, you know, those eight-day stage races, Romandie in those races mm. then you can start to build those riders but you know, Sky or Ineos are you know they can buy everybody they don't want to race against and they're the only team that goes to the Tour de France with three previous winners there isn't a team in cycling that has that Is there no salary cap uh, we've seen no. it in football and is that one of the suggestions to sort of level the playing field It would never really work in cycling because you can just make it up through endorsements so it, it's, yeah, it's you know it's paid for unashamedly by corporates right? Yeah, so yeah. it'll just there's always a way around it. But cyclists, if you think about how hard the sport is and what they earn, the top, top riders, I mean, the top riders do earn really well, but compared to other sports, you know, tennis, golf, mm. Formula One, football, you know, they are significantly less. Even guys like Froome and those guys. Yeah. yeah. They're significantly less than what, you know, in, in other sports, what they earn. And the sport is super, super hard. I mean, you mm. know, as you've seen, you know, these guys, they, when they crash, you peel them off the tarmac and these skinny little guys and uh, yeah, they break stuff. And I'm always amazed at some of the accidents they have and, and they come back. There was a one a few years ago in the Tour de France where this guy's caught the barbed wire fence. Yes. I don't know if you recall that yeah. one. It was a horrific accident. Yeah. And it's I don't carried remember. on riding, yeah. Do you develop that mentality through years of doing it or are the guys born with it? I think if you want to be a cyclist and where no weather is and no day is a bad day and no weather is, is too bad. I mean, they race in snow and sleet and rain and oh, it's hectic. So, mm. so yeah, you are just become, you know, you just become really, really, really tough. And 
falling off is a part of it and hopefully you don't fall off too badly <laughs> too often but yeah it's not when you're going to crash it's or not if it's when you know? yeah so, but yeah i mean they are they are super super tough riders and uh and people that have looked at cycling and love cycling they literally call them gladiators because yeah they will get up until they literally you know and carry on riding unless the doctor actually says no you are broken <laughs> yeah and uh but they are they're a bit mad because they know that their time is potentially quite short so and contracts are short so you know no one really has a five-year deal they often the contracts are one to two years so they know every day that they're not riding is an opportunity lost for them and 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 that's why they'll get up every day if they can and it must be a domestique who's his job really is to sacrifice and he's never going to get the glory. Uh, he might have one uh, small race somewhere where it's his day. But how do you keep that guy motivated? Or, or where does his motivation come from? Yeah, loyalty, I think, is, is one big thing to, you know, to keep those guys on and, and understand what their function is and, uh, and give them the kudos for, for it. But as you see, when a, when a rider wins a race and there was a part of a plan and everybody worked towards that plan, the elation and, uh, you know, just the connection between the individuals is something so special. You know, cycling is a, is a sport made up of brilliant, brilliant individuals. And when you pull them together in one plan, one strategy, and then you win, it's, it's the most amazing, amazing thing when a plan comes together like that and everybody then, you know, contributes towards it, which is beautiful. But yeah, you, it is tough and, uh, and, but they've just got to be recognized. And, uh, and, and that's for me is, it's kind of our job is to, you know, to look at those guys, not just the stars and, you know, and keep them motivated and, you know, tell them that they did a great job. And, mm. and, and that's so that, cause they need that and they don't get it often. So it's, it's quite a lonely, tough environment for them, yeah. but it's like in any business, you know, you get the back office and the front office, the front office make the money and the back office of support roles, but you've got to like incentivize them and give them, give them a pat on the back. Speaking of that, how many people does your team employ? I know it's about 38 riders on the world tour and the, um, yeah. the development, what do you call the development team? Yeah, the, continental the team. continental team. Besides that, marketing people and everything. How, what, yeah, we're the about, with the continental team, we're about 100, 100 people. Wow. It's so, a big organization. Yeah, it is a big organization. It's and and it's so diverse and disparate and multicultural. And all over the world, I suppose. All over the world. Yeah. And we run sometimes three programs at the same time with infrastructure, with support staff, with everything. So keeping track of it is hectic. What's the most sort of teams you've got racing at, uh, or NTT riders in races on any given weekend? Can you have three different? Yeah, three programs of seven to eight riders each so with our 29 riders and our wilter team yeah you literally having can have up to 20 21 of them 22 of them racing at, at a given time on the in same different parts of the all world. over the world yeah, it's, it's absolutely crazy and just keeping in touch with that you know is, is well, the logistics must be well we booked know, 990 airplane tickets last year and we have 22 vehicles and 70 staff that cruise around the world from january to october non-stop five and a half thousand transactions in terms of credit cards, fuel, and we spend about a hundred to one hundred and twenty thousand euros a month, so that's nearly two million rand a month on flights, fuel, accommodation, and food. Oh. It is a complete logistics business, yeah. and it's. Amazing. And I mean, you've developed those skills as a team principal over time, but you can't be on top of all of that. You must have a sort of senior management staff yes, that yeah. handles it. No, I've. I, uh, I mean, our people are our most important assets and uh, especially our staff. You can't lose the staff that we have. It takes years to, to <laughs> get to the point where you feel that you're in the right place. And our logistics managers and the operational side of the team is incredible. And the sports directors that prepare the races are so experienced. And experience is a very important thing in sport and it, particularly in cycling. So you don't buy that. Um, you have to earn it through blood, sweat and tears. But there's no guarantees, of course, because your sponsorship, your license is only for three years. Yep. It could all be over in three years' time. So in that sense, it's not like you're a big corporate is going to be around for another 20 years, yep. regardless of the, the markets. You guys are always on the knife's edge. Does that add to the 
stress and the- yeah no the stress is huge and cycling is a tough sport to to try and find partners for and i think the world is a crazy place now as we've seen but if you look at big organizations swallow up small organizations you know and then you get things like esports that come in so the share of wallet mm. you know so the, the the less wallets and the share of wallet is bigger now in terms of what options there are and uh, and so we and we fight at the level of kind of football formula one you know, it's like a, it's quite a high level in terms yeah. of funding that we need. So it is really, really difficult. And the product that we sell are the riders because we don't have a product that we sell, you know, it's yeah. them. And so, yeah, it's, it's just a tough environment. And it's always like there's always a bartering and a horse trading that goes off. A rider that is, is in your team that does really, really well and then you don't have the money to keep him and then he goes somewhere else and then you bring in another guy or you have to get rid of some guys to be able to pay a big rider to keep him. So it's, it's kind of like a chess game, which is interesting. And it, it's part of my job that I, you know, I don't really enjoy. I mean, I love selling the dream of this team and making and keeping it relevant, but uh, in the market, I think. And But we've got such goodwill with the Quebec charity. And, yeah. and our team is a unique team and it's different. And Would you like to see more South African support for the team or, or African support for the team? Absolutely. I'd absolutely love that. I think we've... We are so well known and recognized across the whole African continent, which is beautiful. But I'd love to see more South African organizations get behind it. And there are, I mean, significant organizations that have grown from South Africa globally. Um, and those are the organizations that we'd love to have partner with us. But some people, they, when they come and talk to us, they don't know how much it is. Mm. You know, someone just wants to give us shoes, you know, if you mm. just want like casual shoes. And I'm saying, yeah, well, that's 300 pairs. What? And then they're <laughs> like, how many? It's like 300. Oh, mm. like, wow. Yeah. Like, okay, maybe another time. And then you're like, <laughs> damn. <laughs> so yeah, we, we're big, which is, yeah. but it's fun. One of your colleagues was telling me about, just anecdotally about the logistics, like how the, the nine riders will go off in the peloton in the morning and there'll be mechanics and backroom staff racing down back roads of France to get to a feeding station. I mean, it sounded like a race within a, a race within a race with all the yeah. sort of backroom staffs charging around rural France and like roads. And I just pictured chickens flying through a village <laughs> and, you know, as these mad yeah. motor cars come through. Just give us a, an idea of what it's like on the Tour de France. No, it's chaos. I mean, I probably sleep four to six hours a night for those three weeks. Even the rest day is busy because it's when all the rider agents come. And so you just, I mean, you just book from morning till night. But the wake up and the, I mean, the, the build up and the breakdown of every day is unbelievable. So we look at the, the sports director would determine, you know, obviously when the team is leaving because we don't stay in one hotel with all the other, all the other riders. Yeah, everyone's sort of, it's every man for himself. Yeah, there's 4,000 people that move with the Tour de France every single day with the gendarmes, with the cavalcade, with everything. And so, you could be two hours away from the start and another team could be two minutes away and have mm -hmm. a hotel right, right near the start line. It all depends. Um, you know, and so your logistics changes every single day. So you can't even ask another team, like, what time are you guys <laughs> leaving to the start? Because it doesn't make any difference unless they're staying in the same hotel. When the sports director says, okay, we're going to leave at this time. And then the mechanics and the swannies and the carers and the chef and everybody, then they work off that. They know exactly. It's a bit like a circus. They know mm. exactly when they need to get up, how long it takes for them to prepare their stuff, the bikes, race food, the water bottles, everything like that, the coolers, put them in the race cars, clean all the vehicles because every single car, every truck, every bus, every vehicle is cleaned in the morning. Yeah, it's got to look good on TV, they right? They look spectacular. And so, so that whole system starts to work. And it's the most amazing, amazing thing. They don't even talk to each other. They just instinctively know what their function is and how they just slot in. It's the most beautiful thing to watch mm. if you're an outsider. And then you're on the day everybody's trying to find the shortest route to get to the, you know, to get to as many vantage points to help the riders and support them. 
So that is a proper, proper race where they're racing through little villages, dirt roads, going crazy. I mean, GPS technology is amazing in these things. <laughs> and sometimes the telecoms in France is not so good. So you like get lost. Yeah. And because uh, you can't find where you are. But And you must have. Yeah, guys are punctual. The guy yeah. crashes the car. I mean, that must have happened. Yeah, no, it happens often. Yeah. It happens often. And then, so that throws everything else out, right? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, it's just crazy. And then if you get lost going to the start, you know, <laughs> they, the race doesn't wait for you. It's, just, yeah. it's they don't, I mean, they don't wait for anybody. It's, it's really, the logistics are crazy. And the Tour de France is so many people. There's 15 million people that stand on the side of the roads and watch it. And, yeah. and they also get in the way. <laughs> So yeah, look, it's uh, it's it's a logistical alarm, and then of course the days are long. I mean, the riders might only get to the hotel at nine o'clock at night because yeah. the racing finishes at six o'clock because for TV, and then you might still have a two-hour drive, or a rider has to go to dope control, and then you have to wait, and and then they get to the hotel, they'll have a, a you know the shower on the bus, but then they'll get a massage, eat at nine thirty ten, and then the day starts again the next day, and the mechanics work through the night. It's and they, and they say an army marches on its stomach, and now all the top teams have their own chefs these days. I mean, yes. that must be a big undertaking in itself, just getting food supplies and and yeah. so on. Yeah, so we have a freezer truck and a and a, and a kitchen truck. Um, it was actually the when we rode our first Grand Tour in 2014, the Vuelta España. The biggest thing that we said was bringing in a chef, and uh, because the, just at the riders when they look at the food, they know that it's cooked in a sterile environment that it's hygienically you know and and it's and they can trust it because they'd normally look at a buffet and they'd be like uh, you know mm. and if it, if a hotel's a bit dodgy you don't know what the kitchen looks like and so yeah look at that was hectic and then when we brought in a chef and and uh, and then he ended up cleaning the utensils of the crockery and the cutlery and in, in the kitchen spending half his time and was completely cooked yeah <laughs> and uh Excuse the pun. <laughs> yeah and and then we were like no we need to bring our own sterile environment and then so we got our own kitchen truck so yeah but it's and then some teams have uh have a dining truck right. so they have a kitchen truck and a dining truck so they actually don't even eat in the hotel with other people but we i mean i don't like that i think it's nice for the riders to actually interact yeah. with so you'll with prepare it in the truck and they'll take it inside yeah. to the hotel so is yeah, it mainly carbs what's the big no it's um not many not really it's a lot, lot of protein carbs is a bit um last so, season yeah so they yeah they have um yeah they have fast burning proteins and uh yeah they they consume a lot and they eat a lot on the bike as well. So it's, they don't like try and bloat themselves and fill themselves up. What kind of stuff do they eat on the bike during the big stage? They, everybody thinks that they have these energy bars and, and stuff, but they have like fruit cake. They'll have sandwiches. So they have salty and sweet. Rice cakes is a big deal. Rice is a, is now the, oh, really? the real flavor. They have rice for breakfast even. Um, okay. So they, you know, rice is a, is a fast metabolizing you know, sauce and uh, and so they have a lot of rice cakes and we make different ones, cinnamon and you know. With yeah, because it sounds like it could be dead boring. So you go, obviously, the chef's got to be a bit creative there. Yeah, right? no, and and that's the point. That's why also one of the reasons why you know having a chef, because after a couple of days, the riders start to labour with their food, and and so the chef is there to make it look exciting, mm. lots of colour, and so that they when the riders come, they 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 actually feel like they want to eat it and they and they enjoy it because as you get more and more tired, you start playing with your food and not yeah. eating it. And do the guys have a glass of wine? Um, are they allowed to? We d we don't mind it so much. The riders are wanting wine less and less and less now. Um, but so we're not a big fan of that. But some of them, the older riders, they sometimes would have a glass of wine at dinner, and then it, it helps them mm. just relax a bit and helps them sleep sometimes. But um, it's not something that we are. Yeah, very fond of. But, it's yeah, a real life of discipline, isn't it? As a rider, it's a it's hectic. It's a hard, hard, hard life. Being a rider's 
partner, girlfriend, wife, whatever, is because it's all about them, who they engage with and the people that they see and the times that they have. It's actually funny. All of the riders get married in October at the off season. <laughs> so you get invited to lots of weddings in a two-week period, and then they all seem to have their kids at the same time. And you're like, what the heck? It's quite bizarre. But yeah, they… Just lastly, the, the whole dope, doping culture, it seems to have eased off a bit looking at it from the outside. Are you, are you confident that doping is, I mean, I'm sure it's never going to be 100% clean, yeah. but you're confident that the sport is changing its attitude to doping? Absolutely. I mean, I think with the riders that we've had in our team, if doping was still rife in the sport, then we wouldn't be able to compete at the level that we have and win the races that we've won, I think. So, no, absolutely. We spend a lot of money, a few million rand. We pay two WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, to test our riders. So we physically pay them to test. Is that a... Is that a it's an, compulsory. It's, oh, it is compulsory. Yeah. So it's a UCR requirement. So the, right. the governing body of, the, of World Cycling requires that... that um, you is that pay. at a set time or is that random? So they can do out of competition testing and because uh, most of the in competition happens, the mm. race organizes that. So we actually, so this is literally all out of competition testing. And then we do a lot of testing internally just to keep top of mind. Yeah, because it's also a PR thing, isn't it? If you have a positive Absolutely. Test. And then we, are, we belong to the MPCC, the Movement for Professional Credible Cycling. There's a lot of teams that aren't part of that and they take it one level up so they look at corticosteroids and they look at all sorts of other things is the blood passport still a thing yes the blood passport is critical if you want to dope now you have to dope 365 days of the year because they test you in and out of competition Just to, can you explain very briefly for the listeners how that works because it is interesting you kind of get a like traces and markers um out of competition and in competition so if they see that you'd start to dope in competition and your levels go up then they can watch the, and see the trends and and the spikes that happen and, and so there's an there's a sort of a, a range that that's correct. considered normal correct? yeah and then yeah. once it's outside of that then they flag you and they target you and then they actually start to physically target you it can take a year um, and then they'll ev- you'll eventually make a mistake because now if you want to dope you literally have to micro dose all the time so that your levels don't change but you will end up making a mistake and mm. It's just not worth it. And it's it's completely not worth it. But I mean, last year when we were here in Cape Town for our training camp and we took our riders into a school in Kailicha and we sat on the floor in this classroom and and I spoke to our riders and I said to them that in this team, we this is this is what we do. This is the people that we impact when we race around the world. This is why we exist as a team, to mobilize people and give them hope and opportunity and independence on a bicycle and help them be free and and if you do dope or something happens, you know, these are the people and let, you know, that you impact and let that be on your conscience. And you can see the guys really, really get it. But there's a new young generation now of, of riders that are coming through that are so anti and just want to do the right things. And they didn't and they weren't a part of that era. It was a while ago. But there are still some people that do get caught, sadly. But cycling is much lower down the rankings of sports that are where riders are testing positive you know and that was completely the reverse 10 it, years ago it so. was right on the top yeah but a lot of other sports don't test as much as cycling yeah it must be the most tested sport outside of athletics yeah, I and imagine. i think they had to do that to lock it down but but we're very happy like our riders are never unhappy when they get woken up at six o'clock in the morning by guys that come in and want to take blood and urine or whatever they just they just know that it's a part of cycling today and it's not going to go away in a hurry and you know they're happy so that's good Lastly, you um, mm. you had some success on the tour. You had a lot of success in 2016. And that we keep referring to the tour because that is the sort of central point of the season. Struggled a bit last year. Where, where are you at this year? Are you confident you can get a stage win in 2020 at the Tour de France? Yes. I guess that's got to be the goal, right? No, completely. I mean, if you think last year we won seven races. Um, we've already won six this year in just six weeks of racing and seven second places. So we've really started well. Many things are a factor in that be prepared better more training camps brought the team together cost more money to do that but i mean we invested in it and the riders invested in themselves a lot more as well so that was a good thing but absolutely the tour de france in 2020 is going to be super super hard 
it's a real climbers race. It starts in the Alps. Really? Um, yeah, so it starts in Nice. Normally, it starts yeah. in northern France or in so surrounding countries. Straight from countries. Nice into the into Straight the into the Alps. The second stage is 4,000 meters of climbing. It's going to be super hard. So, But it's also going to set the race up nicely because the climbers are going to get out. It's going to be so exciting. Yeah. It's going to be so exciting. I think the jersey will change every day. I think it's going to be aggressive. We're going to be aggressive. We're going to race a bit like we did a few years ago and not be so predictable and rely on you know certain you know functions i guess to 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 come through but we want to win stages we've won seven stages in in the tour de france that we've done which is a lot it um, is we've had incredible success in this race but we haven't won in the tour the last two years and that's a big goal for us to go and win mm. stages this year again in the tour de france doug Ryder, thanks very much and good luck for the rest of the year it's oh, been no. a great pleasure thank you very very much thanks for listening to the maverick sports podcast and keep reading the daily maverick for in-depth news and sports coverage Let's take a few seconds to tell you about Maverick Insider, our membership community that keeps Daily Maverick going. For a small contribution a month, you can help Daily Maverick survive and even thrive. Our journalism is free to all, but we need your support to keep it that way. All you need to do is go to dailymaverick.co.za forward slash insider and sign up for as much or as little as you want. It makes a huge difference to us and to South Africa. Please also remember to subscribe to the Maverick Sports Podcast and to our Maverick Sports Newsletter. Thank you, and until next time.